If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to talk about the freak out about a social media company. Why so big? We're going to talk to Michael Malice tonight. A great light in the mood that's going to put a smile on your face, guaranteed. All that and more. But I'm right. Welcome to I'm Right. Let's talk about big tech. Before I get to big tech, let's do a little rewind here. Just, just hang with me. This applies to big tech. This is what we're talking about. We're in this odd period where the sides are kind of separating and everybody's choosing their fighter. And if it seems like I'm excited about this, I'm not. But also I kind of am because it reminds me of a period of time in history that I find to be fascinating. I'm not going to spend long on this because we have, we have Jen Psaki, we have Elizabeth Warren, there's Sean King talk, which is always a good time, but we're going to get to all that in a second. But ancient Rome. When ancient Rome was trying to work out what it was going to be, because it had been a republic for a while, and then, I mean, not that they, this will sound familiar to you, its government got really bloated and nakedly corrupt, and they imported a bunch of foreign slave labor and crowded out the middle class. None of this, none of, this of course, is sounding familiar to you at all. And the Roman people get, began to get upset, and then the government, the corrupt government, started crushing the people. And again, none of this sounds familiar, I know. But a fascinating thing happened, and I've always thought this was just unreal to me. 
the heavy politicians of the day in Rome, whether they be corrupt or not, they began to separate, right? Their, their sides were separated, and they just began to travel around with their own mobs, and if they would run into each other randomly in the streets, they would just have a big sword fight right there in the streets. That's just what society became. It just became a, well, if mob A runs into mob B, looks like we're going to have a fight. Right now, no swords involved yet, by the grace of God, but it looks like we're going to have ourselves a fight with this whole Elon Musk thing. And I need to recap this again for anyone who happened to miss last night's show. The news is all bad for you all the time right now. I know it is because it's all bad for me. You roll over in the morning, wipe the sleep out of your eyes, you pick up your phone, and you go, oh, crap. I know. Me too. Me too. So when you get wins, even if they're little wins, celebrate the wins. Put a smile on your face. What's happening right now with Elon Musk taking over Twitter and taking it private is a good thing. Remember, don't worship the man. He's not your new champion. This is a small win. We need about a million more of these to finally win this culture war we're in. But this is a good thing, right? So Elon Musk takes over, and immediately he's talking about free speech, and Twitter's the public square. And the Biden administration was actually asked about this, and I found this answer to be fascinating and revealing. No matter who owns or runs uh, Twitter, uh, the president has long been concerned about the power of large social media platforms, uh, what they ha the power they have over our everyday lives, has long argued that tech platforms must be held accountable for the harms they cause. Uh, he's been a strong supporter of fundamental reforms to achieve that goal, including reforms to Section 230, enacting antitrust reforms, requiring more transparency, and more. And he's encouraged uh, that uh, there's bipartisan interest in Congress. Okay, what's going on there? Well, pause for a moment. Let's go ahead and rewind before the whole Elon Musk Twitter thing. Joe Biden, Jen Psaki, lots of Democrats actually were out there a lot yelling at the big tech platforms, telling you need to do more. This is irresponsible. What's going on here? But why? I mean, you're not naive, you're not stupid. You understand all these big tech platforms, they're all communist, all of them. Someone did a chart yesterday on Twitter on their donations to political candidates, and I think the number was 99. If not, it was 98% of their political donations went to Democrats. They're, they're all in the tank for the Democratic Party. Well, why was he ever talking about reforming them? What, what are you talking about, Joe? Jen, what are you talking about? Well, that's the thing. That's the difference in the communist mentality and your mentality and my mentality. And it's hard for us to understand. I've used this example before and it is 100% true. If you and me, if we got in a war with the communists, you and me were against the communists and the war is over 100 islands, just 100 equal sized islands in the ocean. And at the end of that war, they had one and we had 99 of them. We'd be doing backflips, right? <laughs> How about that? Look at that resounding victory. We crushed them. Hey, you suck, communists. Enjoy your island. Right? That's what we'd be doing. The communist doesn't think in this way. If the communist took 99 of those islands and we had won, the communist wouldn't take even a brief moment to celebrate. He would be bitter and angry 
and miserable about that one island he doesn't own. Oh, Joe Biden, Jen Psaki, all the rest of the communists in the government, they very much believe in reforming the social media companies, but not for free speech. They believe in bringing these companies to heel so they'll do even more on behalf of the Democratic Party. Keep in mind, when they talk about things like Facebook, they're angry because the conservatives have the biggest numbers on Facebook because we're the only interesting people out there. That's what they're mad about. They want these groups censored. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg for Facebook very likely had a heavy hand in <clears throat> helping Joe Biden win the last election. Spent hundreds of millions of dollars in swing districts and swing states where there turned out to be a, an unusual amount of voter, voter turnout. We'll just put it that way. I mean, Zuckerberg's his boy. And Zuckerberg's out there getting scolded by these people every day. Why? Because it's never enough for the communists. So yes, they're, they, they definitely believe in reforms for big tech. Not more free speech, though. They believe these people must be brought to heel. I mean, after all, if these people aren't brought to heel, somebody might spread dangerous misinformation. That's the word, right? Misinformation like, oh, I don't know. The vaccine stops the spread of coronavirus. That'd be a dangerous thing to put out there, don't you think, when it's not true? Elizabeth Warren got in on it. Quote, the deal is dangerous for democracy and calling for a wealth tax to hold big tech firms accountable. Of course, dangerous for democracy. Democracy has officially become one of those words. The second you hear somebody say it, alarm bells need to be going off all around you at all times. But that's odd because remember the Romans and their different mobs? Well, Elizabeth Warren doesn't seem to have a problem with Jeff Bezos. You see, he's the second richest man in the world next to Elon Musk. He owns the Washington Post. He owns Amazon. He's deeply, deeply, deeply in bed with China. In fact, he's done things on behalf of China, nakedly on behalf of China. If there are negative comments about Xi Jinping in Amazon's comment section, whoop, no more comment section. But Elizabeth Warren isn't worried about that. Why? Well, she's in the other mob. We just have our mobs now. It's what we've become. And the craziest thing, one of the funniest things I saw yesterday and wildest things is, it has long been known by people on the right that big tech companies like Twitter, they ban people on the right. They hardly ever ban anyone on the left. They'll censor people on the right and they'll throttle down the engagement for people on the right, for people who don't have Twitter. Just, just know, I mean, I'm obviously fantastic on it, and if I put something up there that's very witty and they don't want it to get a lot of play, well, they'll just mess with their little computer thingies and make sure not very many people get to see it. And this has been known for years. In several circles, this has been known. This is just what they do. They shut up the right and amplify the left. And if you'd like to know what they've been doing, just listen to MSNBC's Ari Melber talk about what he's worried might be done to them. You own all of Twitter or Facebook or what have you. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to be transparent. You could secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates, all of its nominees, or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else, and the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech 
philosophically clear, open-minded helper. Oh, they might ban your candidates. They might throttle down your engagement. Oh, I hope he does. Look, these people, it is kind of terrifying when you pause and think about it. I mean, we're having fun, and I do have fun, but it is terrifying when you think about how adamant these people are against free speech. Keep in mind, while I love this move and I applaud him for it, Elon Musk isn't some bloodthirsty right-winger walking around with his pocket constitution in his hand. Elon Musk is from South Africa. He's got business in China. He's got all kinds of green movement stuff all over his resume. He just wants people to be able to speak freely. Why is that such a problem for America's Democratic Party? Brian Stelter, well, he's worried. People, people might think the party's dangerous. Look, who knows? I, I think that's a, a that's a that's a, an example of a broader question for Twitter, which is, if you uh, if you get invited to something where there are no rules, where there is total freedom uh, for for everybody, do you actually want to go to that party, or are you going to decide to stay home? And that's a question for Twitter users. Some Twitter users might love the idea that there's going to be absolutely no moderation and no rules at all. Others might not want to be anywhere near that. Am I, am I crazy, Matt? No, no, you're right. And what, what happens to the advertising? I mean, if there's no moderation or little moderation, do the right. advertisers stay away? What does that do to the, yeah. the business prospects for Twitter itself? Yeah, I'm sure Brian Stelter gets invited to a lot of cool parties. I mean, he's definitely the one I'd want there. By the way, a party with no rules sounds sweet. <laughs> All right. So how are they taking it in Twitter? Well, there were some leaks yesterday. Apparently, they had a all-hands-on-deck meeting so the employees could vent their frustrations. And these are just delicious. Hang on to these. Quote, I feel like I'm going to throw up. I really don't want to work for a company that is owned by Elon Musk. Another said, I hate him. Why does he even want this? And perhaps the most revealing one was, we're just going to let everyone run amok? Nobody knows. Again, these employees of a social media platform, they think of themselves as communist warriors. They believe to their bones that it is their job, it is their duty before their communist god to shut you up. They can't comprehend the concept of letting people speak? That might be dangerous. Pretty revealing, right? Pretty terrifying. I did enjoy, you know, I love this account so much. The Twitter account Libs of TikTok, the one that's gotten so much play recently, it put together a mashup of how people on the left are taking it. And keep in mind while you laugh and enjoy yourself with this video, this is all in response to Elon Musk saying, hey, everyone should just be able to speak freely. Well, it looks like Twitter's gone. They accepted the money. And Elon Stalin is taking over, so f you Twitter and goodbye forever, you insane Q-like forum. Or soon to be insane like Q-like forum. Peace out! Bye! Elon Musk, this is directly to you. Enjoy Twitter. I just deactivated mine. I will not be reactivating it. Enjoy. I deactivated my account and deleted the app. That's what I think of it. Elon Musk.
Today, Twitter has announced that they've been bought by Elon Musk, or however you say his name. Um, I'm not interested in staying on Twitter anymore because of this, and I think there's a lot of people that are about to leave. So I just wanted to let everyone know that you can find me here. I'm going to also share this on Twitter before I deactivate my account so that anyone who wants to follow me can find me here as well. Hey, I did a thing today. I deactivated my Twitter account. You can too. Hard to watch. Maybe nobody took it harder than Sean King, famed civil rights leader and black icon Sean King. He uh, deleted his account last night, enraged about the Elon Musk thing. And then, well, I mean, that didn't last very long. He woke up today and reactivated his account. <laughs> None of you losers are leaving. This is just standard communist hyperventilating about everything under the sun. Everything is the end of the world. It's like the entire communist party here in America. There are a bunch of 14-year-old girls who just found a pimple on their nose. All that may have made you uncomfortable. But I'm right. we got a great show for you tonight. We're going to talk to Michael Malice. We're going to talk about Black Lives Matter, speaking of Sean King, and much, much more. But got an email here. Email I think you might enjoy. The email simply says, well, it talks about something else for a little while, and then it says, I bought the Eden Pure purifiers and have been blown away. In my house is old and constantly smelled like it. The smells are gone. I've recommended it to a dozen people, and anyone who comes over cannot believe the difference. He also says they work great in vehicles. Yes, they do, by the way. So thank you for that recommendation. When I tell you about Eden Pure, I get emails like this all the time. Jesse, I can't even smell the cat litter anymore. Jesse, my house smelled like cigarettes and now it doesn't. Je this thing is amazing. It does more than just help with allergies. It takes the odor out of your air. It doesn't cover it up, it takes it out. I own three of them. One in my bedroom, one in my son's room, one in the main living area. Go and do likewise. Go to EdenPureDeals.com. Use the code JESSE, and that gets you $200 off. EdenPureDeals.com, code JESSE. We'll be back. I still think Elon Musk owning Twitter is a bad idea. He will amplify racists bigots and misinformation. He is a bad faith actor with his distorted views of free speech and censorship. <laughs> the guy dancing was the nerd who typed that up. Joining me now to talk about all of this and much more is my friend Michael Malice, of course author of the great book, a handbook for all of us right now called The New Right and the Anarchist Handbook. Michael, <laughs> you oftentimes put a smile on my face and make me feel better about where we are about things. When I'm doing my normal, cynical, everything's the end of the world, you'll come in and you'll put a bright, shining face on it and make me feel better. Well, I already feel good. Make me feel even better about this. First of all, I'm going to make it feel a little bit worse because we don't know that Elon Musk is going to do anything to change how Twitter operates. Yeah. We don't, don't know that at all. He does not have a particular track record one way or another. Sure, he trolls a lot on Twitter, but that could go either way once you're the owner of a company as opposed to someone who's simply a user. That said, what is glorious about Elon Musk taking over Twitter 
is that it is desanctifying sacred spaces that people who are just the worst people on earth regard as their own. They kicked out President Trump, a sitting president, who, if he is dangerous and is urging people to violence, then he certainly, his word should be front and center. So we're all aware of what this awful president is doing, as opposed to him being silenced. And as a result of Trump getting kicked off Twitter, there was this idea among the worst of us that Twitter is going to be a, a space for a certain type of subculture. This has been completely undermined. And this kind of thing goes back to, I think it was 2017, when there was a play in Central Park that I think it was Chase Bank was behind. And every night on stage, President Trump was ritualistically murdered in a reenactment of Julius Caesar. And Jack Posobiec and Laura Loomer uh, rushed the stage. And it was a huge outrage. How are you interrupting our play where we're murdering the president in Central Park? Have you no decency? Have you no respect? So to you and I always talk about offense, offense, offense. This is a great example of this. And there has been no even hypothetical about just how Elon Musk would or could amplify racists. Twitter is not a website where voices can get amplified, only silenced. Michael, you, as I already pointed out, quite literally wrote the book on the new right, which we talk about often. Now, our communists seem so soft to me. Now, I know they're vicious and murderous and aggressive like communists always were, but they seem so soft, as much as I obviously despise guys like Mao, Lenin, Stalin, Che, I mean, you name it. They were at least fighters. Almost all these guys had body counts, lots of them. They've been shot at and shot other people. Our communists seem to be so weak. The second you touch them at all, they just lose their minds. Jesse, I, I can't help but glory at that picture that you just posted of yourself on the throne. <laughs> that is the most ornate and beautiful dunce cap I think I have ever seen. <laughs> it, it, it almost looks like a crown, but you got to look closely. <laughs> Uh, I, I, this is the point I agree with you completely. The enemy class is not composed of impressive people. And I, just yeah. one simple example, that libs of TikTok um, uh, account that I got doxxed. Look at any college professor on Twitter. They're not saying things that are particularly insightful. They're not saying things that are much different from what your annoying aunt or grandma is posting you know, on Facebook. It's the same mindset, the same insights. You're not gonna get some kind of sophisticated reasoning or anything like that. So this is a glorious day and we're taking the fight to the enemy class. Michael, you're great about psychologizing these people. Look, if I was, I mean, if I was one of these people and I was really upset about the idea of free speech I would think that would give me a moment, even if it's a private moment, where I thought, man, am I the bad guy here? I mean, remember, he's not some card-carrying right-winger. He just said it's the public square. Everyone should be able to speak. We don't even know if he'll go through it. But if he does, that's what's freaking them out. They have no idea they're the bad guys, though, do they? Well, I don't think it's the free... They don't really care for free speech. And I don't think most people care for free speech because, some, frankly, if some horrible people are getting you know, silenced, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and I don't even mean in terms of politics. They're just some bad people who should not be welcome in many certain places. What they're concerned about is control. The only way that this kind of ideology can maintain its hold on power, which it's had for a century, is having a monopoly on the microphone. Uh, we saw this you know, in the 70s and 80s. You had three news channels. Everyone came home, had dinner with the family, watched the news, CBS, NBC, or ABC. You had three variants of progressive democracy, progressive democratic party, and people thought they had choices. Now with YouTube, you have infinite 
voices who can speak. Uh, Twitter, you've got to have infinite, except for the people who get kicked off. And this is a big problem for them, because sometimes when people have choices, they're not going to choose between Coke and Pepsi. They're going to drink, you know, uh, unsweetened iced tea or water or energy drinks, and they need to form those coalitions to form a majority, and that's increasingly impossible. And, and, and the thing is, it's glorious. Because unless you have a governing majority, you can't do things like lockdowns. You can't do things like send people to war overseas for no reason. What kind of loser would drink unsweetened tea? Uh, someone I'm trying to lose weight. Oh, gosh. All right. Speaking of Not someone trying to lose weight. Us, Jesse. <laughs> Speaking of trying to lose weight, we have a clip from The View. Here's Sonny Hostin. And in fact, on Twitter, it is predominantly straight white men. So when Elon Musk says, wow, this is about free speech, it seems to me that it's about free speech of straight white men. And so let them have it. Let them just go at it. I enjoy the block button on Twitter. Um, I think it has a real outsized influence in, in, in our world because politicians and celebrities are on it. Michael, it's not a surprise that an ideological gerbil like Sonny would want, you know, would bring up straight white men and bring race into this. That's no surprise to anybody. But have we crossed the Rubicon on that word being effective? I know it's been effective for a long time. It plays right into white guilt America. But I think it's finally run its course. No? I think it ran its course in 2016. I think you've missed the key point of what she said, where she said, let them have it. This was a retreat. Notice she's saying, well, the grapes were sour to begin with. Oh, t first of all, the idea that Twitter, which is a worldwide social media platform, would be majority male at all, let alone white male, let alone straight white male, is complete nonsensical. I, I don't know how many followers she have. She has, I'm sure it's a lot. And you have to keep in mind that The View is the Karen mothership. It is their job to program all the Karens in America who are overwhelmingly <laughs> female, straight white females, uh, who are the biggest probably sociopolitical group that's causing problems in America and the world at large with their busybodiness and neurosis. Michael, where's Trump fit into this political future of ours? I mean, he's already talking about true social and Twitter. He's clearly running again, I would say, in 2024. He'll be popular, most, Repo most popular Republican in the country, not near as popular as he was before. Is Trump a fish out of water now? Is he still the leader of the right? Well, where, where does he fit into all this? I don't know if you saw recently, he was having a rally and he was promoting his social media site and he referred to it as Troth Central. Uh, my goal is for 2024 is to have a debate where both candidates, Biden and Trump, are having strokes simultaneously on stage. That, for an anarchist, is how we win in this country. Uh, I think Trump has increasingly been regarded as more of an albatross even by his own supporters in favor of people like Ron DeSantis. Uh, this show is not as funny. And the biggest asset of the Trump presidency, and I think you'd agree, was every morning you'd wake up, look on Twitter, and be like, what the hell does this guy said today? And it was <laughs> hilarious. I'm running a tournament right now in the top 16 Trump tweets. And the response I'm getting was tremendous. But at a certain point, the guy gave us Fauci, the guy gave us so many other John Bolton, Ivanka and Jared, so many nefarious characters, and what did Republicans have to show for it other than liberal tears, which is something, but it's not as important as what Youngkin is doing in Virginia and DeSantis is doing in Florida, or even Abbott in Texas. Michael Malice, his book is The New Right. Of course, The Anarchist Handbook as well, but his book is The New Right. It is, that's our handbook, people. Michael, appreciate you, man. Always a pleasure, Jesse.
All right. We have a lot more. We're going to talk about crime. It's out of control. It's something we have to continue to address right now, and we have to address the why so we don't make these mistakes again. It may get a little offensive, but that's who I am. Before we do that, though, speaking of crime, I know when you think of crime, you think of the latest internet video of some poor old lady getting robbed. The truth is, old ladies get robbed every single day in this country online. It wipes people out, not just old ladies, families. If you own a home, home title theft is a problem for you. doesn't matter who you are. If you own a home, it's a problem for you because your home title is online now. It's all online. These cyber thieves, while you watch me right now, they're online browsing, trying to hack into the cloud, get your home title, forge your signature on it, and take a loan out against it. Don't get burned. Go get home title locked. They'll detect any tampering and shut it down like that. If these guys get you, you can get evicted from your home. It's happened to people. Go to HomeTitleLock.com. We'll be back. Accountability. Consequences. We talk about it all the time on the show. It's not exactly a mystery to anybody that crime is out of control right now. Even the sorry news is covering the fact that, especially in the cities, crime is nuts in this country, particularly against police officers. The number of police officers killed last year in the line of duty was 73. That is a 59-year, 59% spike year over year, and the first time the number was that high since 1995. And wouldn't you know it, the director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, she's very concerned about these numbers now. Violence against law enforcement in this country is one of the biggest phenomenons that I think doesn't get enough attention. Last year, officers were being killed at a rate of almost one every five days. An alarming percentage of the 73 law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty last year were killed through things like being ambushed uh, or shot while out on patrol. They were killed because they were police officers. Right. Wearing the badge shouldn't make you a target. Hmm. Man, that's, that's good stuff, right? Good for you, Mr. FBI Director. But that's funny. It almost seems like it was yesterday when St. George Floyd died and the Democratic Party decided that cops were the enemy of the country and that there were a bunch of evil racist white people who and they were they were planning on overthrowing the government and committing all these violent acts because they've been asked time and time again, uh, what are you digging into? What's the biggest threat in this country? And here's what they've said time and time again. According to the intelligence community, terrorism from white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland today. Not ISIS, not Al-Qaeda, white supremacists. In the FBI's view, the top domestic violent extremist threat comes from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically those who advocated for the superiority of the white race. Which is funny, because again, what's that number? 73 cops. Not one of them was killed by a white supremacist. That's so wild. It's so wild. So, so FBI, what have you been doing? I mean, we've got all these cops dying. It's not white supremacists killing them. 
What have you been doing? Oh, oh, never mind. I have it. It's right here. The FBI's been busy hunting down people who, well, um, hang garage pole strings at NASCAR. They've been busy hunting down nonviolent first-time offenders who sauntered into the Capitol on January 6th. Oh, the FBI's been very, very, very busy. They've been busy targeting the ideological opponents of the Democratic Party and demonizing white people at every turn. Well, the cops are dying, and it's not the white supremacists doing it in this country. Who might be at fault? Man, I, I don't know. Nothing comes to mind. I remember the first thing I said to the organization uh, was, do you fight police? That's what I wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to fight police. They were the, they were the, the, sing, they were the single most um, sort of terrorist organization in, in my uh, life. And I want to know how to fight them. I'm at the point where I'm ready to put these police in the f***ing grave. You with no mask on and f*** you and your Hitler mustache, you f***ing racist Hmm. I want to put the police in the grave. Who, who was that white supremacist? Oh, that was Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter who've been slaughtering police officers in this country for years. Maybe you forgot... They slaughtered five of them one night in Dallas while Barack Obama was president. They've been waging war on the black community and on police officers for years. But don't worry, the FBI is going to find those dastardly white supremacists and get to the bottom of all this. Good grief. All right, we still got a lot more for you. You're going to want to hang on and hear about the supply chains, food shortages, China. We've got more coming up before we get to that. I know you're upset about corporate America going to the left. It sucks. It was never like that. When I was a kid, it wasn't like that. I'm not even that old. Not that old. It sucks. Where do you go now? Where do you spend your money? I don't want to spend my money with people who hate me. Go to public SQ. I don't have a brain with some Excel spreadsheet in it. I don't know these things. I don't have to know these things. I have public SQ right here on my phone. Public SQ. It's downloadable right, right from the App Store, Apple, Google Play, whatever you have. It'll let you know who was with you during COVID. Who believes what you believe? Where should you go get that cup of coffee? Go get that local burger. Public SQ. We'll be back. We do not yet know the full extent and the systemic and structural changes which will happen. However, we do know that global energy systems, food systems and supply chains will be deeply affected. That doesn't sound good. And you know what? It doesn't sound good either. Joining me now, Ross Kennedy, Senior Fellow for Security Studies Group. He's also a supply chain guru. Uh, Ross? What exactly is that Bond movie villain talking about? <laughs> uh, I think he's talking about the uh, you know million points of light uh, that, that they're going to use to uh, disrupt food security. So we've got a few things happening uh, in the world, uh, not just in the U.S. but but worldwide that are impacting food security. Uh, you know, the last few years have revealed just how weak uh, the global supply chains really are, at least how fragile they are. Uh, when you've got everybody doing very specific things and relying on other countries to meet other needs. So the 
pandemic has revealed to us that, that these weaknesses are, are really kind of inherent throughout the global economy and uh, have a major impact. So, the, you know, it's a catastrophic failure cascade. One thing kind of leads to another all the way down. It's, uh, it's a pretty negative situation. Uh, the, there are some, you know, things underneath that that can be identified, but at a top level, uh, that's definitely the issue at hand here is, is, you know, globalization is basically coming apart at the seams. Well, you're the guru and I'm not when it comes to supply chains. We've already <laughs> seen shortages. We've already seen some emptiness on the shelves. We're not the Soviet Union, but how much worse is this going to get, Ross? Where are we at? Are we in the beginning or the end of this whole thing? Well, that depends on which, uh, unfortunately, which country you're talking about. There, there are some countries that, uh, due to a number of different circumstances, are incredibly dependent on uh, their ability to import and, and source goods and raw materials and food products from other countries. You have a lot of African countries, for example, that uh, are going to face some pretty severe challenges with the result of the disruptions in the Black Sea and the Russia-Ukraine. Here in the U.S., our bigger challenge is, is really going to come down to uh, we have a very high technology food and production and industrial base. Uh, we rely more and more on consolidated farms and consolidated uh, grain distribution, consolidated food processors uh, to turn these into you know, edible food products. And that for us is going to be the big challenge is, is the, the, as the ability of the, these you know, mechanized industries to uh, rely on software, rely on hardware and components that, that break. Uh, that, that haven't been able to be maintained for the last couple of years. Uh, it's, you know, we're already seeing it with some of these food production facility issues. Uh, we're seeing it with our, you know, inability to export some of these things. Here in the U.S., it's not availability of grain. It's not availability of, of cows or chickens or, or pigs. It's the ability to turn them into something that can be bought at the retail level uh, or exported to the global market. Uh, a little bit different situation for us than others. Ross, can you explain, and look, I'm an, idiot, I'm an idiot, so take your time. Can you explain why our food processing stuff is so consolidated in this country? Because it doesn't make sense. It's such a geologically diverse country. We're all over the place. He's growing fruit. He's growing wheat. It doesn't make sense that everything would get bottlenecked, and yet everything is bottlenecked here. Why? That's really come down to, you know, industrial policy, political policy, tax policy in the U.S. over the last, you know, 40 to 50 years has really favored conditions of consolidation in the industry. You're talking about, uh, you know, what used to be very regionalized, you know, parts of the South grew certain kinds of fruits and vegetables, parts of the West did the same. The introduction of irrigation allowed parts of California to be able to grow more, uh, you know, where the weather was a little bit warmer. Uh, and then we grew, you know, corn, soybeans, wheat, things like that here in the, you know, in the mid, in the Midwest. What's happening now is, is it got cheap enough to move things from A to B. And so you started to, you know, processors begin to co-locate where, uh, not necessarily where the resources were most abundant, where it made sense for them to be. Uh, you started to see them move to where the tax regimes are more favorable or where federal policy said, hey, we should favor this product, you know, in the, in the case of corn, let's turn it into fuel. Uh, so that means we need to make things from other products elsewhere. And it's, so it's a, a mix of political and, and sort of Wall Street driven priorities that, you know, in our country has eventually said, uh, you know, we don't know, we no longer need a thousand independent industrial companies. Let's, let's achieve economies of scale from a food processing side and begin to consolidate these down. Uh, and as we've had depressions or recessions over the last 30 to 40 years, every time that happens, you have a wave of consolidation where the big 
uh, eats the littles. And now we're in a situation where you've got five or six major meat packing companies, five or six major industrial food processors, five or six major, you know, grain and, and you know, grain elevator and, and distribution companies. And, and they all kind of work interdependently, uh, you know, with a pool of less than 20 companies essentially feeding our whole country. That sounds ugly. My friend Gordon Chang, China expert, he's out there saying he thinks China is attacking our food supply. In what way would China be attacking our food supply? Are they the ones flying planes into our food processing plants? <laughs> I don't know about that. That that uh, that is a pretty interesting story. You know, the the, the interdependence uh, that the U.S. and China have on one another is is really one of the uh, probably most talked about but little understood. Uh, stories. You know, China has a significant influence in our own supply chain here in the U.S. Uh, the largest pork processing company in the U.S. is Smithfield. It's actually owned by WH Group, which is a, a massive uh, Chinese enterprise. Uh, China does own some amount of farmland in the U.S. related to their Smithfield acquisition and, and other ways they've been able to acquire ground. But, you know, I think what, what Mr. Chang is talking about there is that China, uh, you know, owns Syngenta. Uh, it's one of the big six of, uh, you know, retail chemical fertilizer and seed, uh, you know, research and production that we utilize here in the U.S., comparable with, you know, BASF or, uh, you know, with, with the Dow DuPont combined entities. So that is one issue is, is that a lot of this research and things are being done over there, and we have to import that knowledge, we have to import the seed, we have to import those chemicals here. A lot of generic chemicals that are used in agriculture production, a lot of the chemicals that are used in food production are made in China. China is also an enormous consumer of chemicals and fertilizers for its own uh, agriculture production. And so when it puts a finger on the scale and says, we're not going to export a certain amount or we're going to import and stockpile, U.S. market for us to be able to use as we need to. Uh, you also have the issue, you know, that there are significant uh, industrial, you know, cybersecurity vulnerabilities uh, up and down the food supply chain worldwide, not just in the U.S., but in China, in Russia, in Europe. Uh, in Brazil, and if you were so inclined, it, th there certainly is uh, the, those gaps that you could begin to create some some chaos and disruption in food supply chains by targeting certain facilities or uh, causing you know causing mayhem a little bit uh, in the ranks through uh, you know through cyber espionage activity. So there's a lot of vectors that China could potentially be causing trouble with us, and uh, it's certainly a, a national security mandate that we we increase and then sort of fortify. Uh, across the whole food supply chain, these systems and these resources. Finally, Ross, inflation. Now, everyone knows the bulk. Well, I shouldn't say that. Every person with a brain knows the bulk of inflation. We're feeling it because of our idiotic COVID lockdown insanity, but we're not going to go into that right now. We are sure. going to experience more and more of it because of this Russia-Ukraine nonsense, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's uh, there was a little bit of a viral thread that run one went around Twitter about, hey, don't worry about global wheat supplies. You know, we're talking about exports being limited, but as a percentage of total global production, uh, it's not that much. Well, the issue is here in the U.S., uh, we're expecting that that droughty conditions and in, in major wheat producing areas is going to wipe out a significant chunk of what we expected to yield of the winter wheat. Uh, we're seeing some drought conditions for spring wheat. And in Russia and Ukraine, you know, obviously you have a country that's being torn apart uh, by war right now. So they're not gonna be able to harvest as much of the winter wheat, which is the primary uh, 
primary growing season for their wheat crop in, in Ukraine and in southern Russia. You're also seeing corn, uh, which is that is a major corn producing region. They're not going to be able to produce as much corn. Spring planting is going to be heavily disrupted. And even if you can get the winter wheat out of the ground and the spring corn and the spring wheat planted for harvest in September, October, November, there's a very high likelihood that the ability to export that material out of Ukraine uh, is going to be significantly impacted due to all of the issues in the Black Sea, naval warfare, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, the challenges are not going away, and there are a number of countries, China included, that really depends on the production of that region to be able to help their own, you know, industrial food and feed supply chain. So the the tail on this, the, the Russia-Ukraine war is going to be much, much longer uh, as far as global food supplies than just, you know, the next two, three, four, five months, however long this war lasts. Oof. Ross Kennedy, that was outstanding, brother. Please come back soon. Thank you, Jesse. Appreciate it, sir. Man, I feel so much smarter. That was awesome. All right. We got Light in the Mood coming up next. And I don't care who you are. You could be the most cold-hearted jerk in the world, like me. This will put a smile on your face. Hang on. All right. It's time to lighten the mood. And you know I'm not a big pet guy. To put it mildly, I'm not a pet guy. The kids wanted a dog. They were asking for a dog and asking for a dog. And I grew up with dogs. I'm not anti-dog. Dogs certainly the superior of all pets. But finally, we got a dog a little over a year ago. And I'm embarrassed to say I love the dumb dog. Okay, I can't help it. I get home and the dog's throwing him himself, throwing himself on me like I haven't like I haven't been there in years. When I walk around, he's right there with me. When I sit down, he comes up to me. I love the dumb dog, all right? Dogs are awesome. So this video is awesome. That was awesome. See, told you you'd love it. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA 
DNA with Hannah Storm chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.